I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 187. We hope y'all are enjoying all of 31 Nights of Halloween. We sure are. We sure are. Yeah, you sounded very question marky. <laughs> we sure are, I think. <laughs> I think my favorite things, again, are the kids, the kid-friendly episodes. I know. I love them. And Cole and Allie did so good at the beginning. They really did. Allie's fucking laugh at the end, chef's kiss. <laughs> hey, you know what else is chef's kiss? Ooh, what? Patreon arts! I love that you just know, but you still go with it. Like, <laughs> that was clever, and it wasn't. <laughs> but thank you so much, Anna O. from Tennessee. Amanda H. from Washington. Tina D. from Maryland. And Valerie O. from Texas. I died. Texas. Yeah. What is happening to you right now? Uh, Texas. Thank you. Okay. <sighs> Have a best friend that can rescue. This is going to be a long episode, friends. 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 Oh, I do have one thing. So I watched, a like, it's a limited series on Netflix called Made. And let me just say, if you're, I don't know, I cried probably every fucking episode. There's lots of triggers in that. It's about domestic violence. It, I don't know, just so much of it was just, it was so good, but it gave me such anxiety because it would count down, say she left with like $20 and it would count down, like she put $5 in her tank. So that's $5 off. You know, she had to do Uh this, whatever. And that gave me anxiety because I feel that right now. And, you know, just like all of that and, but it was so good because it was such a an accurate de- depiction, I feel like, you know? Yeah. And I don't know. So it's, I think, 10 episodes, but it was really, it was worth the watch if you can handle something that heavy. My story this week isn't going to be that heavy, but what is scarier than going to a haunted house attraction? Try living in a real life haunted house. So I came across this blog post, and it was on Sookton.com, like S-O-O-K-T-O-N.com. I was searching real haunted house Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) Very clever keywords there. You know, you know, the research I do here. But it turns out that the person who wrote this article and maintains this blog, they were contacted and were actually on season two, episode eight of Paranormal Survivor. So those were good keywords because it gave me a good story. I will say that every actual researcher cringes when we say, we did research Oh, on I know. This. Oh, and for sure. Like, what's that TikTok that's like, if you're not doing peer-reviewed. <laughs> <laughs> right? So I'm going to share their story about how they survived a year in a haunted house. Picture it, Wilmington, Delaware, September 2011. Suki and Rob were newlyweds and looking for a place to begin their new exciting chapter. And they turned to Craigslist. And yes, we all collectively cringe, but it was 2011. Things were a little different, a little different back then. Like, give them some credit. It's not 2021 Craigslist. And they found this apartment that was a second unit of an older home converted into a duplex. The house was originally built in the 1900s, the early 1900s. So it had all kinds of character and charm. Hardwood floors, exposed brick, all the interior design porn you can think of. (laughs) 
Well, they go check it out because the pictures looked amazing, sure, but it's Craigslist. They were met by the property manager, Pat, and she informed them that the top floor was vacant because there was some legal stuff with the last tenant. And they saw that, yeah, it was as charming as the pictures made it seem. Um, Legal stuff with the last tenant? Uh, Red fucking flag, y'all. Yeah. But everything was charming. However, the bathroom was a little more shabby than chic. And the neighborhood was more on the up and coming side of things. But the price was lower than anything they had looked at before, and it included heat and electric. Or if you're like me and you type this out, head and electric. We know exactly the gutter that your head's in. (laughs) Right? Well, they said goodbye to Pat, and they were like, all right, we'll think it over. We'll get back to you. But Pat was like me after a day, and she can't wait to know if she's going to get ghosted. So she called twice and was just really persistent And told them, like, you're going to be the perfect tenant, so we want to rent to you, blah, 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 blah. And the two of them were like, we can't really dispute how amazing this apartment is for the price. And Suki said they had already envisioned themselves drinking some cold beers on the porch that overlooked the Wilmington skyline. So they said yes to the address of 1720 Washington Street. On move-in day, like with most of my stories, there is one person who will stop and make a remark that leaves that uneasiness in your mind. And for Suki and Rob, it was a teenage boy on a bike. He stopped and asked if they were moving in, which they replied yes. And his next words were, you'll regret it. No one wants to live there. Holy shit. Okay. Right. So it was ominous. But he was a kid. I was just about to say, but he's like a teenager and you're like... Yeah. He's probably being a jerk. Yeah. You know... You're like, it's probably his ex-girlfriend's house and he's pissed (laughs) that she moved. Right? Yeah. I mean, grains of salt with that. Well, two weeks after they had moved in, still with boxes everywhere, I get that, Suki was doing the dishes. She heard something rustling in the boxes, which she immediately thought was a mouse or something, Mm -mm. but couldn't find anything. So she turned back around, continued doing the dishes, but she heard the sound again. So whipped back around, and what she saw just baffled her mind. She saw the cardboard box, think Amazon freaking box, fold itself closed. Not supposed to do that. Like the two short sides folded down, longer sides folded down. And so she's like, hmm, that's weird. Tried to reason it away because, you know, it's like, could be the wind, could be, you know, like whatever. But it did leave her very unsettled, and she ended up calling a friend and leaving the house for a bit. And it seemed like since she experienced it, acknowledged that something weird could have happened, the floodgates then opened. Cue the classic haunting tropes. Suki would turn off a light, it would turn back on. Doors would open by themselves. There would be weird phantom noises that would occur, you know, whenever. But Really, she was the only one who was witnessing any of the activity. The next major incident would be when Suki was watching TV, and she got a waft of some cologne around her, but she was like, that's not Rob's, and she knew she was alone in the house. But the scent grew stronger and stronger until it seemed like the person wearing it was right next to her. So she, of course, looked around to see if she could see anyone, 
But she didn't. Nothing but darkness. Until suddenly, she felt hands on her neck, squeezing. She fought against the unseen hands and was finally able to get herself upright and stand up and choke out the word, stop which it did after a bit, but she was fucking terrified. But then suddenly, just when she let her guard back down, a string of Halloween lights on the wall just kind of like, it's like they raised themselves up and then slapped hard back down against the wall. So Suki questioned out loud, like what it wanted and pleaded with it to leave her alone. And she tried to reason Hey, we're just living here. We want to live peacefully with you. Like, we mean you no harm. Just whatever, trying to, trying just to make whatever's going on, stop. But at this point, she thought she was going crazy. On Halloween, they had a little get together with friends at their house. And every single picture had some sort of distortion. It was either really blurry There was orbs in the picture, something going on, and that kind of helped confirm the haunting for Suki. She confided in Rob, but like I mentioned, he hadn't experienced anything at this point, so he really didn't know what to do to help her. And they were both a little frustrated because they didn't know what was going on. Suki also admitted to Rob that she felt like she was being watched a lot when she was at home. And then she went on to tell him that she had this frightening experience in the shower earlier. She said that she felt that she was being watched again, but she was determined to shower. However, while she was showering, the room temperature just dropped drastically. And all of a sudden, a hand pressed itself against the curtain. Meanwhile, my brain went straight to, this girl is in the shower and the temperature drops and then all her hair grows back on her legs and it hurts to shave. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? When you get chill bumps in the shower and it fucking hurts to shave. Well, where Suki's mind went is, oh God, someone is here. Someone's opened the window. That's why it's colder in here. And now they're coming to get me. That's why I felt, watch, this is all making sense. But when she finally got the nerve to look, Nothing and no one was there, and the window was closed. Further proof to both of them that she was losing it. But it wouldn't be too long before Rob had some of his own experiences. One of the doors that would open by itself was the spare bedroom, and Rob was the one who would witness that a lot. And at first, you know, again, he reasoned it away. Okay, house is settling, whatever. The wood's expanding, blah, blah, blah. But these are old, heavy doors, not just something a gust of wind could do. So he got to where it's like, okay, this is happening a lot. That was the first crack in his denial. Then one night, Suki woke up to Rob gasping for breath. She finally got him awake. And at this point, she was hysterical and rightly so. He explained something was choking him. And that's when Suki remembered what happened to her when she was watching TV, the same thing. And that would be the first of many sleepless nights in their bedroom. They were constantly waking up with the feeling of being choked by an angry man. And if it wasn't by him, they would be woke up by a woman who could be heard crying at all hours during the day 
and night, walking up and down the hall. Then, which equally rivals the whole choking man to me, they would wake up randomly from their sleep to find ghost children just sitting at the edge of their bed watching them. No. Uh -uh. Mm Uh-uh. Right? No. They would also hear the pitter-patter of children's feet running up and down the halls, too. Mm -mm. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Why they always got to do it at fucking night, too? <laughs> like, I'm trying to fucking sleep. Y'all know how I say, don't fuck with my sleep. Yeah, they do, because it's on the new merch. Did y'all miss that announcement? Because we got some new merch. Finally, like five years later, we got some new merch. Mandy Diamond did, what do you say? Chef's kiss. Fucking amazing. Speaking of the weeping woman, the first time Suki encountered her was one morning when she was getting dressed. She saw something pass by, and she knew that she was alone in the house, so of course she went to check the hall. That's when she saw a lady in white. She was walking sloth speed, and she really didn't seem to be walking at all, but instead floating on air. And when she reached the end of the hallway, she just disappeared. This was the first time Suki ever witnessed an actual apparition. Fast forward a few weeks later, and Suki would learn the identity of this woman. She and Rob were at their neighbor's place enjoying, like, a happy hour, and they told them the history of this house. Like, for a while, their neighbors had denied anything paranormal going on. But this particular hang sesh, the drinks must have been more heavy-handed because they were spilling all the tea. They even admitted to getting some weird feelings and really not knowing, like, what to do with them, where they came from. You know, they were just like, yeah, something's off. But the big news was that it turns out that Anne-Marie Fahey lived in the apartment next door to them. It's the same house, just divided by a wall. What's bonkers about this is that she was murdered, and it's like a well-known death in Wilmington. Word on the street was that she was having an affair with the Deputy General of Delaware, Thomas Capano, I think, question mark. Anne-Marie was last seen on a date with him in Philadelphia. No one would ever see her alive or dead again. She just seemed to vanish. But later, Thomas confessed to her murder and admitted that he dumped her body in the Atlantic Ocean, and his brother was his accomplice. And he was sentenced to life in prison for that. Well, when Suki looked up the picture of Anne-Marie, she was like, oh my God, this is the woman in white that I saw. Anne-Marie would become a frequent visitor. And every time she would announce her presence by dimming the lights and sadness would just fill the room. Once Suki was watching TV and it was about like babies and weddings and stuff like that. And she just started to sob uncontrollably. And she said it was as if she could feel Anne-Marie's pain of never getting the chance to experience any of that. And the thing is, Anne-Marie was about the age of Suki when she passed. And Suki believes that she just has that connection with her. You know, it's like she's getting to live a life that Anne-Marie didn't get a chance to. Yeah, Another thing that the neighbors told Suki and Rob is that the landlord actually had known Anne-Marie's family and stuff, so there was like a connection there. And even more juicier than that is that the tenants in their apartment 
moved out not because of like legal issues or whatever Pat, the manager, had alluded to, but instead the tenant's ex-boyfriend broke into the house and violently attacked her. Oh, my God. Like the police were called. It was traumatic, dramatic, all the things. And it seemed like that negativity lingered in the area, not just the house, but the neighborhood. Suki said that gunshots were normally heard at least twice a week. Damn. People would fight on the street. Even their downstairs neighbors started to fall victim to the negativity and got into fights, one resulting where the cops were involved. And unfortunately, Suki and Rob were not immune to the negativity. Rob started drinking more than he ever had before. They began having arguments and shouting matches like they had never had before. And the haunting not only affected their mental health, but started affecting Suki's physical health. Suki recalls that there just seemed to be a depression and darkness that settled over them. And she tried to fight back. She used incense, sage, she prayed, she did chanting, but the haunting continued and they continued to be miserable and their quality of life dwindled. And we all know that things can feed on negativity like that. One night, Rob's mom was over eating dinner and the lights just started going off back on, you know, like they went off. Rob got up to go turn them on. Oh, they're on. You know, and just shit like that. And he said it was almost like they were pulsating, like the electricity was pulsating. Well, while they were trying to figure out what was going on with the electricity, the window closest to his mother just shattered and blew the shards onto the table towards them. Like things were definitely kicked up a notch, definitely getting more violent. And that night, Everything changed for Suki and Rob. They were terrified of their house and what it had done to their lives. They were happy before they moved in, and now they needed to find their way out. Luckily, their way out came in the form of a new job offer in Florida for Suki in July. They broke down with pure happiness and hope of new beginnings. They packed their things faster than they had ever moved before, but their resident entities made sure to make their presence known at least one more time. Suki felt the sadness of the weeping woman as she packed the boxes, and the man in the shower, as she called him, made them feel like he was happy they were leaving, like he had won, you know? And in Suki's blog post, she put it so eloquently, so I'm just going to end with this. This is what she said. But the day we left Washington Street at 4 a.m. on a Thursday, I felt a weight lift off of me that I didn't even know I had been carrying. It was like a dark cloud was lifting and we were moving into the light. Confirmation of this came when... As we were driving to Florida, the sun came out so beautifully over the horizon. It was like the light was guiding us forward. Since then, she, you know, nothing negative followed them or anything, and they're living their best lives. Well, what do you think? I think Suki was a little sensitive, And she fought back against it with, like, you know, trying to do stuff. So I think it was getting more violent. And I'm glad they got out when they did because it could have gotten way worse. Yeah. 
But I think since she was sensitive, she saw it first and how it, you know, like how it was making everything negative. I mean, I don't know what it was, you know, if it was these separate entities or like these people or whatever, you know. But if it was negative, I wonder if it's something that could just take all of those forms. Right. I don't know. I wonder what the house is doing right now. I don't know. I mean, and she put that address out there. So if you're in Delaware, let us know. <laughs> we are in no way responsible for whatever happens to you at that house or on your way or anything to do with anything of dealing with this story at all. Okay, bye. <laughs> right. <laughs> Carrie of Sound Mind is doing that. I'm like, she did put the address out there. Yeah. Nobody sue us. Well, I mean, her putting that blog out there, you think, I mean, she got some shit to back up her shit or, you know, like most people don't put everything out there like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But I don't know. You know, I'm going to be the skeptic. I'm not going to just blindly be like, oh my God, yeah, that, that house. <laughs> and I don't, like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm not saying like it's a demon or anything. Like, I don't think that. But that was a lot of negativity though. Yeah. Yeah. I never want to experience that. No, fuck no. Just at messing with their sleep, I don't want to experience that. <laughs> Look, I don't have good sleep as it is. Please, the little I get, I just, I need it. Like, as much as I joke about it, I'm 100 serious. I don't want anything fucking with my sleep. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, is your story going to keep me up all night? That was a really good segue. Thank you. Um, And my story's basically like a... Real life horror story. Damn. So the story starts out with Hella Nielsen. Hella was born in Denmark in 1947, and she was an only child. Hella was beautiful and smart. She spoke like so many fucking languages. Obviously, she knew her native Danish. She also spoke French and English completely fluently, and she was able to understand, like, conversationally, German, Norwegian, and Swedish. Good night. Like, fucking brilliant. She went to college in England and worked as an au pair in France. So, Hella was a jet setter, and she's just this tall, beautiful, blonde bombshell who could, again, she was a total package. She was sweet, she was smart, she spoke all these languages, and was beautiful. When she was in France, she got a job as a flight attendant for Capital Airways. And she flew everywhere. So she just kept this, like, jet-setter lifestyle. And I think about my Aunt Nita when I tell this story, because she was a flight attendant as well. Back when you think of, like, the 60s, quote-unquote, I mean, stewardess, you know, Mm -hmm. where they had to, you had to look a certain way, you had to weigh a certain amount. Yeah. She was one of those. She's still alive. She's in her 80s and she lives in California and her and her husband are so precious. I just want them to be my best friends. She's also the one, her name is Nita and I was 15 before I knew that her name was Nita and not Nita because that's how my grandma pronounced it. <laughs> she also pronounced my mom's name, Trisha, as Trisher, which is why that's what Donna calls her. Mm-hmm. So everybody had an ER. So I'm I'm not even joking. I was 15 before my I knew my aunt's <laughs> name was Nita and not Nita. Well, she's technically my cousin, but... Nita and not Nita. I've learned that that's a Southern thing, that we have cousins who we call aunts. Yes. Well, because it's, she's older. Like Mm -hmm. she was, so her mom was my grandmother's sister. And, but my grandma was so much younger than her that they were, she was the same age as the kids, you know? So out of respect, you just call them aunt. 
Because they're the same age as your fucking grandma. (laughs) Well, eventually, Hella heard that Pan Am Airways was looking for a flight attendant in the Copenhagen area. There were over 200 people who applied for this job, but she was so excited because it would mean that she was, you know, being able to get a job back home and spend some time with her family. But because she's so great, she was one of eight people chosen out of the 200. So because she got the job for Pan Am, which Pan Am was like, remember? involved The the thing. Yes. The thing like CIA agents, like the whole, the whole shebang. So it was a really big deal that she got this job. After she got the job, Pan Am sent her to Miami for all of her training. And she and a couple of other flight attendants stayed in like apartments and houses and all of that together. At first, she was in like this little hotel where a bunch of flight crews and all of that would stay because it was so close to the airport. And, you know, there was a lot of mingling at the pool, like exactly what you think of when you think of old school flights, like the pilots hooking up with the flight attendants, like exactly what you think of when you think of like flights, which is what you just, just said. said. Yeah. You know what? I, <laughs> what? What do you say I have to do? I have to book in that. Yes. <laughs> now, Hella was a little quieter about her shenanigans. She wouldn't tell you like everything that she's in. She's very private. So even though she had really good friends, she didn't tell them much. Unlike Donna. Well, on May 24th, 1969, Hella is at the hotel and she meets a pilot by the name of Richard Crafts. And he's about 10 years her senior. He's 31. Now, Richard Crafts is a pilot who only dates flight attendants. Ew. I don't know why. I'm just like, <laughs> like, he's like exclusively dates flight attendants. Well, I mean,. No, it's not because of like, oh, their schedules and this and that. No, 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 no. Well, also, his last name is Crafts. He flies aircrafts. Bunch. <laughs> That's his stage name, has to be. He wants to see their landing strip. Ma'am, put those jokes aside <laughs> and <laughs> pick them up later in baggage claim. <laughs> I have excess baggage. <laughs> That's the fucking truth. <laughs> you definitely pay an extra for that weight. <laughs> okay. Richard Crafts grew up very affluent. His dad was a World War I pilot, and they lived in Connecticut. Even though Richard attended private school, he did not excel. And when he got out, he decided that he wanted to join the military, too. And... When he joined, he was worked on fixing aircrafts. But then in the 50s, he became a pilot. But, okay, it's said that he flew the helicopters, not like the big like jets. So one of the podcasts I was listening to was like, that means he was like lower in his graduating class for like piloting because the top of the class got to pick and they'd pick driving like the big old jets or whatever. Ew. And then the people who were like lower test scores type things drove, you know, flew the helicopters. I don't know how true that is. But in 1958, he went to Korea and Japan. He flew planes for Air America. And this organization is recognized like as a branch of the CIA back then. So apparently he really did fly some like secret missions type things to like Southeast Asia 
and all of that. After his military career kind of bounced around and eventually in 1968 started working for Eastern, which was a very large airline at the time. Well, Richard was a bit of a ladies' man, even though he wasn't very attractive. People thought he was back then, I guess. And, you know, he's a pilot. I was about to say, he's got money and he's a pilot. Well, when he and Hella met in 1969, he was actually engaged to someone and had another girlfriend, I think. Dang. The other girlfriend part I heard on like one podcast. So I don't, I didn't necessarily see that in my research, but we're going to go with it because I heard it. Okay. Now, Richard and Hella had an on again, off again relationship for quite a few years. He did eventually call off the engagement, but they were on again, off again for, like I said, quite a few years. And in 1975, Hella actually got pregnant. When she was about four months pregnant, they got married. They bought a house in Connecticut. And over time, she ended up having two more children. So they had three total. And look, they lived their best life in as far as money went, because, you know, we're talking 70, you know, late 70s, early 80s, and they're making a quarter of a million dollars. And they're making like $125,000 a year. So that is a shit ton back then. That's a shit ton now. Who am I kidding? I was about to say, oh, uh, yes, please. Right? I would kill to make that much. Well, well maybe not kill. kill. Bad choice of words, especially on, you know, a true crime podcast. But I would not balk at $120,000. Mm-mm. But if that's, think about how much that is for us now, how much it was back then. Right. Hella loved her job. And of course, she went back to work. Given their lifestyle that she's gone for periods of time because she did the international flights. So when she's gone, she's gone for a little while. And him too, because he's a pilot. So they hired an au pair named Dawn Marie Thomas. She was a 19-year-old girl. And she was there to take care of the kids, you know, do anything that they needed to be done at the house. Now, Richard was very strict with the money for Hella, only Hella, not for him. I'm not trying to be ageist here, but if I'm gone out of the country, like me and my hubby are gone working, doing things, I don't think I trust my three kids to a 19-year-old uh, with a lot of money and stuff. You know what I mean? Like, well, I don't think they just she just has access to all the money. Well, she has access to a lot of house and yeah, bears in the house. Just because they're 19 doesn't mean that they're not responsible. A lot of au pairs are. They're college-age kids. Yeah, but usually they're with the people. No. That's well, not how this on works. the ABC Family movies I watch, they are. Okay, yeah. See, real life, they're not. <laughs> That's why they have them. Well... Okay, so back to their finances. So, Hella had a budget that was like barely enough to cover the household expenses. And Richard got to do whatever the fuck Richard wanted to do. He collected guns. He collected, like, farm equipment that he didn't even fucking need. What? Yeah, he spent, like, $25,000 on this, I don't know, some sort of John Deere combine machine. <laughs> and it had nothing to do with it. And so, it literally just, like, sat out in the yard getting rusty and it pissed all their neighbors off because they're like, we're in this affluent fucking neighborhood and you got this fucking rusty piece of a farm equipment just sitting there lowering our property value. That is such wow. a, that is such a privileged thing to say wow. out of my mouth. But it's what happened. Wow. 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 
But on the other hand, that's why we have HOAs and shit like that. Because if you spent that much money, you don't want somebody running your property value by, you know? Yeah. If you want to do all that, go live somewhere without an HOA. I also don't know why I'm talking so high pitched. The other thing about their relationship, other than, you know, the financial abuse, was that Richard would go off for days at a time. And not just work as a pilot all for days at a time, like would disappear for days at a time and not call home, not tell Hella where he was. He would just go off. And Hella knew that he was having affairs. He was a free spirit. Gross. So basically his thing was he wouldn't seek out affairs. Oh my gosh. But he wouldn't turn them down. Oh my gosh. He's the worst. He's the literal worst. (laughs) I hate, I don't seek them out. They seek me. Oh, shut up. So we have financial abuse, he's having affairs, but also apparently there was some physical abuse as well. Of course. There were a few times that people saw some bruises on Hella's face. When she was asked about it, apparently she would just tell people that she bumped into stuff, but there were a couple of people that she did confide in that it was that Richard hit her. So the other thing that Richard spent his money on was... Okay, so he became, like, an auxiliary police officer. Like, he wasn't paid for his time. It was, like, all volunteer type thing. And he was in it to fucking win it about this thing. So, he bought a Crown Vic, like a 1985 Ford Crown Victoria. he did. The same kind that the Connecticut Police Department, like, state police used. So, bought this new car. And decked it right the fuck out with all the sirens and antenna and all the things to be like a legit car. And he would like go to calls he wasn't trained and like sanctioned to go to. Of course he would. He really thrived on that power. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, he was like, oh, you don't have to pay me. That's why he loved being a pilot. He got the pussy from being a pilot. And now here's another uniform That he can get... Has more power. Uh Uh-huh. Because he was eventually hired by a town, like, like nearby, and he only made, like, $7 an hour then as a police officer. I'm not saying, like, only. I'm saying compared to what he was making as a pilot. But he way preferred this job because, again, of the power it gave him. There was, at one point, that Richard was diagnosed with colon cancer an article i read said that he was given like a two percent chance to live with it and he beat it like i was about to say this motherfucker beat colon cancer yeah he did like completely in remission well hella stayed with him through that helped take care of him and after that i think is when the stuff with like being the police officer and all that really started he just kind of changed even more for the worst, even though he was already the worst, then he became the worst, worstest. <laughs> okay, so Richard wanted a divorce because, you know, he'd been through all the things and he's like in this midlife crisis thinking he's a police officer and all this shit. He's already having all these affairs. He's already being, again, the worst. Well, he wants a divorce, but he's like, I'm not fucking paying her alimony and I'm not paying child support. Oh my gosh. So he... Basically wanted one one of the articles I read was talking about how he wanted to make it so like bad for her so that she would leave. Uh-huh. And apparently he lied about having colon cancer again because he wanted her to be like, Well, I'm not taking care of him again. I'm out. 
Uh, she's not a terrible person like you are, Richard. Well, you dick. Yes, but also sometimes people can't do that, and so sometimes he, it's okay for you to. Oh yeah, not. But I'm saying in this instant, right? Yeah, thanks. So she, of course, didn't go anywhere, and he was like, "Oh, okay, well, that's over." So he continued to go away for days on end and have affairs and all this stuff, and she knew. Who is he, a tomcat? One day, Hella was going through the phone records because she wanted to make sure that Dawn, the au pair, wasn't making long-distance phone calls that she wasn't allowed to make. Richard saw her and, like, jerked the bill from her hand and was like, you know, whatever he said. Mm -hmm. That's how I imagine he sounds. (laughs) Freaked out because she's, like, looking at the phone bill. And so she's like, oh, okay, he's having an affair again. Cool. So she finally decides, like, I'm done. (laughs) Right? I mean, um... Way to throw her off your scent. That's the equivalent of, like, snatching your cell phone out of somebody's mm-hmm. hand today. Yeah. And, like, laying it face down. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, she decides that it's time he's abusive physically, financially, cheats on her, all the things. And so she decides to hire a divorce attorney. The divorce attorney recommends that she hires a private detective to get more information to prove that he's having an affair so that she's more likely to get custody of the kids. So she does, and she provides him with a couple of months worth of phone records. And she says, like, look, there's this call going to Jersey. You know, I don't know who that is. He's, you know, making the calls pretty often. This is probably his mistress. So the PI does what PIs do, and he figures out the address for that phone number and goes and gets all the pictures of Richard having an affair. She's, of course, distraught, but she knows that this is what she has to do because it's time. But she does tell her attorney, if something happens to me, don't assume it was an accident. Whoa. Right. Well... She was kind of dreading telling Richard because she knew that he was going to lose his shit. But when she told him that she wanted a divorce, you know what he did? What? Patted her on the head and said, whatever you want, dear. Oh, no. Like, that is worse than, like, yelling to me. Oh, my God. Like, what a condescending dick. Yes. After that, Hella went to work on an international flight. And when she came back... It was, so this is all happening like November, around November 18th of 1986. So when she's coming back, there was a really big winter storm that was coming through Connecticut. It was pretty unusual for it to be, like it was coming with like five feet of snow this early. So she gets home that night and the next morning the power goes out at the Crafts house. Richard tells Dawn, the au pair, hey, take the kids over to my sister's house. She has power. You know, I'll meet you there later kind of thing. And the au pair's like, why are we, why? Like, they have a fireplace. They have a generator. Like, why are, okay. But he's like, no, 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 fucking go. Yeah. And she's like, okay, well, where's Hella? And he says, she's already at my sister's. Okay. So, I mean, this is like 6 a.m. too. So she gets the kids. They go over to his sister's house. Richard meets them there. And Dawn's like, Hella's not here. And he's like, oh, maybe she had to work or whatever. He just made, he, he said some excuse. 
and he makes the kids some breakfast and then leaves. So Dawn has the kids at the sister's house and is just waiting. And it's not until Richard comes back at about 7 p.m. that night to get them. There's still no Hella. So Dawn's like, where's Hella? And he says, well, I don't know. And then in the coming days, still no Hella. She didn't go to work. You know, she worked so hard to get this job at Pan Am. She had an exemplary, you know, professional history, Mm -hmm. never missed work. There was no reason for her to, like, she didn't call in or anything like that. She just didn't fucking show. So, sorry, do you know how, how long this was after she said she wanted a divorce? I don't know. I don't know exactly the timeline on that. Okay. Just wondering because, like, she still lived there. Yeah, she did. She did. You know what I mean? So, But, yes, she did. And I think it was, like, I mean, a couple weeks, I think. Yeah. I just think it's weird. If you have the... The means. The means. And if you have the gut instinct to tell your attorney, hey, if something happens to me, don't think it was an accident. But that's not fair to say, though, because you don't know... Sorry, that's not where I thought you were going with that. I thought you were going with, like, Richard to move out because they had the means to afford, like, a hotel or whatever. He did. She didn't because he kept all the money under lock and key. She didn't have the means to do that. She didn't have the means to leave. Well, but, I mean, she wanted the divorce, and he was like, whatever you want. Okay, well, then move out. Yeah, but he was just being a condescending dick. He's not going to actually do anything she wants. I'm just saying. I don't know. Yeah, but it, but. But and do what? Like, what was she supposed to do? No, I know. She had no money. He had it all. He's not going to fucking leave. He, I, I could see him being like, this is my house. This is mm-hmm. my da-da-da. He's not, he's not going to give her anything that she wants. He just was being a condescending dick. Yeah. So, of course, her coworkers call, and they're like, where the fuck is she? And he says that she had to go to Denmark to take care of her sick mother. Her mother had just turned 80, and he said that that's where she had gone. Well, around this time, Dawn also notices that there was a stain on the carpet in the master bedroom. But eventually, Richard, like, cut out that stain and had it replaced. And Dawn's like, what happened to the carpet? And he tells her that he spilled some kerosene on it. So the attorney and the private eye are like, this is fucking weird. Like, some shit's going down. Yeah. Take it to the police. And the police are like, no. I think it's normal. You know, she spoke all those languages. She was so well-traveled. She worked for an airline, free flights, all the things. She's probably just gone. <laughs> um, no, no. She'll show up when she wants to. Oh, my gosh. But keep in mind, this is the police department that he did free labor mm-hmm. for. Exactly. And from what I understood, because there is a forensic files on this, and I just watched, like, the first half of it. I didn't even have time to finish the whole thing. But it looked like the private investigator was the one who was doing interviews with some of like her friends and the au pair and all of that and like taping it to get this information in a timely manner because the police was having nothing to do with it wow so eventually they did take it to the state police and they did something they interviewed richard crafts and he was all I don't know what you're talking about. Again, his story changed a couple of times, but eventually it kind of landed on, she just left us. But they had him do a polygraph, and he, of course, passed it with flying colors. But you're also dealing with ex-military and a pilot who knows how to be calm in serious situations. Yeah. He was upfront about his affair, 
And that's kind of when he had the whole, oh, I didn't seek out affairs, but if they came to me, blah, 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 blah. He's a douche canoe. So Keith Mayo, he deserves his name, said he is the private eye that Hella had hired. So because he was so like, fuck this shit, I know he did something to her. He actually figured out where the craft's trash was taken so that he could see if he could find that piece of carpet that was like thrown away or whatever cut oh, out and thrown away. yes so he hired some people he found out what dump it went to hired some people lots of gagging all the things they fucking found the rug in a fucking dump they found this rug so he took it to the state police so guess who at the time was like head of the forensics thing in connecticut then who henry lee Oh, shit. Yeah, like the Henry Lee, like the lead scientific forensic, all the things, worked on the OJ trial, worked on the John Bonet Ramsey, worked yeah. on all the fucking things. The, like, God of forensics, yeah. Henry Lee. So, and at this time, like, it's starting to be picked up by the news outlets and all of that, because this is kind of at the beginning of the PI taking it to the state police, trying to get their attention. Again, you know, like I said, it was going to the press now, and... The, of course, the detectives for the local PD is like, oh, this is just a missing persons. And then Keith Mayo is like, mm, actually, no, I don't think that she just is missing. So that's how, like, again, more and more and more pressure came. And the state's attorney was like, okay, it's time for the, the state police to take over. And that is also when Dr. Lee got involved. So they did test the carpet. And... It did not have any human blood on it. Oh, shit. Right. So they started looking at Richard's finances. They found out that he had bought a new freezer, which Dawn confirmed. She was like, yeah, we had a freezer. It was gone. He said it broke, like, when the power went out, basically. So he bought a new one. They offered, like, to deliver it and all of that. And he was like, no, 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 I got it. Paid for it with cash. And took this, like, hundreds of pounds freezer, like, by himself. They also found out that he had rented some other, like, machinery-type things for, like, $900. Oh, God. Do we know what those were? Maybe. Okay. So, the police decide that... They've got enough evidence at this point to search the house. They knew that the crafts were going to be gone for Christmas holidays for a few days. And so they decided to search the property on Christmas Day. So Dr. Henry Lee is there and he finds some like little bitty drops of blood on the mattress. Like almost can't even see them with the visible, like human eye, like almost that tiny. But, you know, he's Henry Lee, so he sees it. And then there was like a um, swipe of blood on the side of the mattress. So he tests that blood. Keep in mind, it's mid-80s, so no DNA. But they test the blood and, okay, yep, it's human. Okay, yep, it's, I think she was O negative. It's her blood based on the type. And they were also able to tell that it was venous blood and not menstrual blood. Mm, so okay. it had you had to have some sort of puncture, some sort of wound, some sort of something that caused that blood. 
He was also able to tell through his forensic geniusness that it was like the blood was at about a 10 degree angle. So he knew that however it happened, they had to be like leaning over the side of the bed because they said that she was like putting sheets on the bed basically when he attacked her. So she was kind of like crouched down, putting sheets on the bed is their theory. But this house, when they went in, was like, I mean, didn't give Pazuzu a run for his money, but kind of did. It was, they said it was disgusting. There were dishes everywhere. There was like mattresses just on the floor in the living room. What? Yeah. And just things everywhere. Like some carpets were taken out and thrown away. They did find the freezer, but there was nothing in it. They did find tons of weapons, which we knew that that was one of his pastimes that he spent a lot of money on. Tons and tons and tons of weapons. So they had to tag them and take them all because, you know, if she was murdered with one of those, they needed to be able to compare and all the things. They eventually seized 108 pieces of evidence from that house. And some of that evidence was they found some towels that had been washed. And they were like, "Mm." so they took the towels to test them. And Because when they did like their quick little test, it lit up like there had been some blood there. So they were able to say like, okay, this was her blood. These towels had been bleached. Like there was a cleanup type thing. So then they figured out. So after they did the search of the house, they continued to go, okay, what do these pieces mean? This, This doesn't tell us anything really. We are pretty sure she was hurt here, but where is she? So then they finally figure out that... That $900 charge at the rental place was for a wood chipper. No words. And he didn't just rent any wood chipper. He rented like the biggest, baddest wood chipper that could chop up like 12 inches worth of trees. So they're like, no, no, surely not. Then they found a guy, Joseph Hine is his name, and he was a utility worker that did the plowing of the snow. He came forward and he said, Ooh, by the by, about three o'clock in the morning, I saw this guy with a wood chipper and a U-Haul on the side of the road. And he was at like this river, the Housatonic River. I'm pretty sure it's how you pronounce it, but probably not. So he said, the guy was, you know, wood chipping thought it was weird like enough that he was like watching him in his review mirror like it was like he was like this is this is weird right the guy was like (laughs) no no no, drive on you're good you're good so the police were like where'd you see that and so he took them to the exact spot so the detectives go to that spot and literally on hands and knees are starting to look through this area they find some plastic and they also find a piece of an envelope And that envelope is addressed to Miss Hella L. Crafts, 5 Newfield Lane in Connecticut. It's literally an envelope with her name and address. Whoa. So they set up a perimeter and they fucking get after it. They start digging and they find a bunch of strands of blonde hair. They find bone fragments. Oh, God. They find fabrics. Again, more plastic stuff. They did find some wood chips. but Oh, okay. But a bunch of it, they weren't really sure what it was. Mutilated flush? Yeah. So, insert Dr. Henry Lee. So, the water was so cold in the river that the divers couldn't stay very long. 
they've done their perimeter. They've searched all that stuff. They've gotten some, they need to find more. Yeah. So they even had to get permission to like close off the dam and block some of the water flow to the area so they could lower the level of the river so that they could search faster. Wow. Because it was so cold. And in the water, they find a chainsaw. And the serial number had been filed off of the chainsaw. So they keep searching. In addition to the chainsaw, they find a toe, Ugh. a finger, Fuck. and a tooth. <gasps> so all in all, they ended up finding over 2,600 strands of blonde hair. Oh, my gosh. 69 slivers of bone, five droplets of blood, two teeth, part of a skull, three ounces worth of tissue, some part of a finger, a fingernail, and part of a toenail. Fuck. I know. I'm sorry. That's gruesome. So what they did, again, in Henry Lee fucking fashion, because the rental place still had that exact wood chipper that he had rented. So they they go get it, take it to the forensic lab. And they were able to look in there, too, to find more forensic evidence. But the other thing that they do is they take a pig to put it through there to see like the striations and stuff that it would make to see if it matched. Oh, poor Wilbur. I couldn't do that. No. I could not do that. But it did match. They were also able to match the fingernail polish on that fingernail to the fingernail polish that was on her dresser. They were able to in... They had they actually this whole case had some really groundbreaking forensics. Being able to look at like a bunch of different bones and like know I forget what it was called, but it was like differential something with the, like all the different bones. And then they knew that like her tooth that that was her that was Hella's tooth because it had some of the jaw bones still attached. And they knew that like okay, let's just say she lost her tooth you know you know trying to say okay let's if they're creating reasonable doubt well if she just lost her tooth that part of the jawbone would never still be attached right so there was some forensic odontology i guess is what you'd call it that really came into play with this too yeah well and if she just oh lost her tooth it wouldn't have been where a guy saw a wood chipper and strands of her hair and all of that. And a... A toe. A, and a chainsaw at the bottom. Yeah. So what they did with the chainsaw, because he had filed off the serial number. And so what they were able to do was to put some... Putty? No. Oh. Some like... um I'm going to call it acid because that's what I can't... I can't think of another... I don't know what it actually was. But basically like an acid that kind of ate away at the top few layers mm. of the scrub, like of the file. And it revealed the serial number and so because he had a warranty on his chainsaw that he had sent in (laughs) they were able to match the serial numbers up and go no 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 no. this is his chainsaw sucker also how (laughs) elementary me silly putty because it totally works on newspaper (laughs) okay but no (laughs) but that's what yeah i'm like silly putty but you could if you were trying to get like an imprint you could do something like that but that there was nothing to imprint because he filed it off (laughs) ma'am oh good it was groundbreaking silly putty so basically what they figured out was that hella came home from work Stopped, checked the mail, put it in her pocket, and went upstairs. And 
was like making the bed or, or whatever. And that's when Richard attacked her. He then put her in the freezer, sent the kids away with the au pair. And then because she was frozen, that's why there wasn't a lot of blood mm. with like the chainsaw and the wood chipper. Damn. So, which is why he needed a new freezer uh-huh. as well. Yeah. Do you think he tripped the power or was that really? No, it was really, okay. it was really out. I know at first, when I first heard the story, I was like, oh my God, he cut the power. But no, it really happened that way. Mm. He would have found some reason to get them out of the house. Yeah. But, but yes, it, it really did. And, you know, he said that he rented the wood chipper because they had trees and stuff down with because it really was like an unprecedented storm it was really bad but he was like oh we had trees down that's why i went and rented the wood chipper and they didn't they didn't have any limbs or anything down from it so he kind of had an excuse for everything but it was all easily disproven yeah so long story short they arrested him and he went to trial well in his trial there was one holdout on the jury and so, what? Yeah. And so the judge was like, no, you have to go back, make like, make this work. Yes. And he was like, this juror basically refused and was like, I cannot do this. I cannot convict him. Like, we, we got to be a hung jury. Why? He literally cut his wife up and put her through a wood chipper. I know. Like, what in the horror movie is going yes. on with that? So, this juror was again, like I said, the holdout, and it was a hung jury. And the prosecutor was so fucking pissed that he was saying, like, in the media after it was like, this guy's a coward, yada, yada, yada. So that guy ended up suing the prosecutor for slander and, like, getting a shit ton of money. I mean. He's not wrong. He can't go badmouth him. It's his right as a juror. But my gosh. Yeah. How much more evidence do you need, dude? But it did go back to trial just very shortly later. In the second trial, three years after Hella's murder, it only took the jury eight hours to reach a unanimous verdict. As it should. With that. Yeah. And you know, I'm one to usually be like, well, no, 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 no. I am sorry. If the chainsaw that was scrubbity-dub-dubbed that was his is there in the water that you had to lower. Mm-hmm. With her toe, finger, all the things. Yeah. She gone. Hmm. Like, nah. And he ain't yep. got no alibi? No. So in January of 1990, he was sentenced to 50 years in prison. But he's out now. Oh, my gosh. Like, this year. Got out. How old is he? He's 82 years old. And he was released... Early. So basically what it said was he, when he was sentenced, there was a law called statutory good time. So basically. That sounds like a porno. I am sorry. (laughs) It sounds like some stepdad daughter porn. That's disgusting. I'm sorry, but it does. So basically what this meant was that huge amounts of time could be knocked off of a prisoner's time to be served for good behavior, working jobs, all the things. Now, that law has been changed, but they had to follow the laws that were in place when he was sentenced. He got time for the three years that he was in prison before, like, you know, while he was awaiting trial because he couldn't afford his bond, bail, whatever the thing was. 
But here's the thing. He actually had two disciplinary infractions for contraband in 87 and in 98. But we don't know what it was for. We just know that he did have those two infractions. And one of the times his punishment was 15 days in his cell. But we do know it wasn't like drugs or anything like that. It was considered a quote like medium offense. So with a contraband, it could have been too many books. It could have been, you know, I don't know what it was. But he did have two infractions. Yeah. And he still got all of these, this time off of his Mm -hmm. sentence. Well, it's like, well, but he had those infractions, you know. He was transitioned to a halfway house for veterans. And basically... Like, everything I saw at this point, he should be out of that halfway house because his transition would be complete. But I never found anything else saying where he was or if he was still in that halfway house or not. But basically, right now, he's 82 years old and he is out in a halfway house. 82 is damn sprightly. He could still do a lot of damage at 82. That motherfucker survived 2% chance of colon cancer and lived mm-hmm. at 82 fucking years old. However, the fiscally kind of sort of responsible side of me is like, well, let him go and then they won't have to pay for all of his medical bills and his burial. <laughs> you know, the state yeah. won't have to pay for it. Yeah, but what if he does something bad? What's he going to do at 82? I'm not saying he needs to be out. He still needs to be. He still needs to be in jail. Like I, he should be there for life. He brutally, yes, murdered and dismembered his wife, the mother of his children's body, and then they were left with neither parent. Like, yeah, he is a like scum of all scum. He should never, ever, ever, ever be let out of prison. But if you go and let him out, let him out at 82. Let him fucking deal with their own medical bills. Actually, that's not true because then he probably has no insurance and then it's going to go back on the thing. It's a whole big process. So we're still going to end up paying for it. But seriously, is that not some horror movie shit using a goddamn wood chipper? A wood chipper. And I kind of glazed over that because, you know, you you don't need me to paint a picture. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No. Like that makes my skin crawl a little. And that he was so nonchalant about it. Oh, he is a fucking sociopath. Yeah. So nonchalant about it. So like... I'm going to make the kids breakfast after this. Yes. Which I don't think he had done the wood chipper thing yet. But then again, maybe he had because... I don't know. I'm kind of confused about the timeline because if the guy saw him at like 3 o'clock in the morning, when did he do it? You know? But she would have had to have had enough time to freeze. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. I'm not a killer. I don't understand these things, and I'm definitely not scientific enough. Well, they did say that, like, the detectives, there had just been this big news story that broke because somebody had done that to a neighbor's pet, and they were like, (gasps) did he watch that and get the idea from that? Like, how? you know, they were like, surely not. Yeah, they're like, surely not. Like, surely this is not what we're, yep, this is exactly what happened. You know? Mm -hmm. How do you jump to that? Like, I feel like now in 2021, we're more like, yeah, he used the wood chipper. Yeah. But in 1987, mm-hmm. you're not like, he probably used the wood chipper. You know what right. I mean? I don't know. I just feel like we've gotten more and more gruesome. Like, even with like movies, and that would be something you would see in a movie now. Mm-hmm. Whereas in 1987, that is not something you'd see in a movie. Right. You still got Freddy Krueger coming through the waterbed. Oh, still terrifying. Saul had not come around yet. Oh. I wonder if he took the police job to learn more about. What he could and couldn't get away with, and no, all I think of that. that was I think that was a power thing. I think it was 
just pure coincidence. Mm. But they do think that she was hit in the head with his police flashlight. Ooh. Can't stand him. Oh, he's the fucking worst. His kids did go live with his sister, and they did get his pension from the airlines. And I guess his sister, on behalf of the kids, like sued him for over a million dollars. But I don't think that, or I don't know if they got any money from that. And you know, the the girl that they got the pictures with him having the affair with, I mean, she was literally hella 2.0. Like it was... Oh, really? Yeah, she was a flight attendant, tall, blonde hair, like the same as, you know. Can you imagine being like, oh my God, like... I know. Can you imagine being the woman that he was engaged to when he started dating Hella? And you're like... What the fuck? Right. I mean, not to mention, like you're saying, the mistress, but the potential bride Mm -hmm. before. Damn. He just was such a piece of shit. Like, he was, like, said, basically, Hella, like, trapped him into the marriage by getting pregnant and, you know, just some bullshit like that. Like, he just, one podcast I listened to said that she had actually gotten pregnant one time before the first child and that he forced her to have an abortion. And, I mean, I don't know how true that is. I just heard on one podcast I didn't find that in anything. And it's like, you know, he's just icky. He's just fucking, Mm -hmm. he's a disgusting human being. Yeah. And I feel so sorry for his kids, which are, I mean, they're grown, but that doesn't change anything. No. Fuck. I know. What's sad is that this one still isn't as heavy as some of the other ones you've told lately. And this had a wood chipper in it. Maybe it's a delivery. I kind of glaze, not glaze over that, but I feel like I didn't. No, I think because you can hate this person more. Like, yeah, he was, you know, you, it's like, oh, 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 you know, well, hmm. but the other ones, I don't know. Maybe you focus more on him. And so I, not that you didn't focus on Hella, but. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Like the abuse and the the yeah. affairs and all of that leading up to it. Yeah. And so it's just like. You were able to create this hatred for him. Yeah. And so. Like, you, whereas the couple, it's like this random, ugh. seemingly random. Well, and it's someone that they've helped and that they mm-hmm. would have. And it could have all been, I mean, this could have all been avoided if he would have just divorced her like she wanted, you know. But, God, Donna, he could not pay alimony. Yeah, he didn't want to pay. God. Ugh. But, yeah, so it's just a little, huh. I mean, this is still heavy. And I think, too, that this one does highlight, though, because we've even already touched on it, that, you know, well, duh, that domestic violence does not know age, affluency, affluency, is that a word? But, you know, like it's, it's can literally happen with anyone. Yeah. Demographic be damned. Yeah. However, I think that this case does do a good job at highlighting the fact that she was affluent, but there wasn't really anywhere for her to go. It was definitely like a swept under the rug thing. And, you know, because like we were saying, like, what? how, how was she going to leave? She barely had enough money to run the household, much less, what, was she going to go get a hotel? What was she going to do? Yeah, I hope I didn't come off as victim blamey. I just tried to put myself in that situation. This is why I can't have kids, because I can only think about myself and Marley, and she's just going anywhere. But I don't know. I don't know. Because from that maid show that I was talking about, Mm -hmm. she left in the middle of the night and he got her for basically like kidnapping. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? 
And so, hell, I didn't think about that. I don't think you, how can you? I don't, it wasn't kidnapping. I was going to say, I don't think you can get kidnapping your own child. It wasn't that, but it was that she left with his child in the middle of the night and didn't tell him where they were, all the things. Like, and so he took her to court. And because she didn't have a job and all of that, like, yeah. it wasn't in her favor. So, you know what I mean? So it's just so hard when kids are involved because obviously you put them first. Well, we are creeping into the, I don't know, I feel like we're getting so close to the end. I of thought you were going to say creeping it real. No, no, no. I feel like we're creeping towards the end of the 31 nights of Halloween. I feel like it's coming so fast it this really year. It really is. It really is. Though it was like October 30, I'm like, oh my God, it's already 31st. Yes. Like, wait, what, what day is today? Yeah, I guess technically this when this comes out, it's only the 18th. We're like literally halfway through, but I'm like, it's like one day left. I know, I know. I still haven't put up my Halloween tree. Y'all, this is so lazy of me. So, I mean, surprise, surprise. But I put up, I put it up, I put it up, but I was like, hmm, I didn't get the pre-lit one. And so now I have to do the... Yeah, I just wouldn't do it at this point. I just leave the tree there. Yeah, I have to do the lights. And then I was like, man, like I'm already thinking about having to undo the lights and undo everything. And I'm like, huh. Yeah, I wouldn't do the tree. You got everything else up. Just leave it. But then I want it. I I don't know. Yeah, and then you're just going to have to make it a Christmas tree because I know you ain't taking that shit down before Christmas. I am. Yeah, right. Yes, okay. I am. Oh, now I'm putting it up because now <laughs> I have to prove it wrong. <laughs> See, and that's how you manipulate Donna. <laughs> oh, good. Thank y'all so much for listening. Don't forget to check out all the 31 Nights of Halloween bonus content here and on Patreon. And remember, creep it real and, and don't, don't get, get scared. scared.